0: To the church of God that is in Corinth.
1: To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called, Called to, to be, be saints, saints together, together with all, all those who are in every place.
0: Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: And that there be no division among you.
1: But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body.
0: So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. For the the body body does not 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 consist of one member, but of many.
1: As it is, there are many parts, yet one body.
0: If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together.
1: The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 23. Please read aloud with me. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ." This is the word of the Lord.
0: Morning, everybody, y'all doing all right? Life's been going so fast for me, I forgot it was Labor Day weekend. We're in here setting up, actually we were in here cleaning up yesterday, I'm like, where is everybody? And then uh, it was Jonathan and Jessica reminded me, it's Labor Day weekend, what are you expecting? So uh, perhaps my today and tomorrow will slow down a little bit, and I'll be able to rest with everybody else. Um, I'm reminded that uh, we have a hurricane heading to the eastern United States, and so as we begin to um, uh, pray that our time together would be fruitful, I'll pray also for those that are in the path of the hurricane, and that all of our families and friends that we're thinking about even now would be safe in this coming week. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for... The sun and the beautiful weather that we have here, and even as we say that, we're reminded that there are some in harm's way through uh, the the naturalness of uh, an ugly storm, and and so Lord, we pray for for safety. We pray that people would have wisdom and common sense to uh, hunker down, stay in, stay put, and uh, God, that you would cause this storm to to pass over. That as it lands on land, it would. Uh, it would be downgraded and wouldn't be as impactful as the forecasters are saying. We pray for the whole eastern United States, uh, just for the safety of those, particularly those that we are thinking about and that we love even now. God, we turn to your word and uh, we pray that it today would be food and uh, uh, nutrition for us, that as we partake today, that we would see Uh, its benefits, and where we don't see it, Lord, that you work in our souls uh, to do something miraculous, to uh, incline us to Jesus, to draw us near by your Spirit, and Lord, to change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. So if you're just joining us, or perhaps here with a friend this weekend, we have been going through very slowly the New Testament book of First Corinthians, it's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he started uh, called Corinth, and Paul is, is doing two things in this letter, and he's doing it over and over again, back, back and forth, as he sort of uh, talks about things with them, things that he knows that's going on, questions that they've asked of him that he's answering. He's both encouraging them, but he's also um, imparting a little bit of rebuke. Um, No one wants to be rebuked, but uh, the Bible says that the the Word of God does that to us to help us grow. So that's the reason why Paul is doing this. In this particular section, and we've been sort of in this section for almost two or three chapters, Paul for several weeks has focused on the idea of, of freedom. What does it look like for a Christian to live free in the world that they're living in, but also free so that you are within the will of God, doing what God would have you to do. And because the Christians have sort of lived outside of that freedom, Paul is is, uh, correcting them, trying to get them back on the right course. Uh, Specifically, what the Corinthians are doing in our text today is they're taking something that Paul had taught them earlier, a Christian principle, and they've taken a particular phrase that he said, and they're taking it out of context, and they're using that to live their lives, by Paul's estimation, uh, in a way that would destroy themselves, destroy their individual and corporate witness, uh, the witness of the church, but also destroy their witness to the outside community that they're in in Corinth. Bible scholars say that what the Corinthians are actually doing is something called licentiousness. I mean, when's the last time you used that word in a sentence? That's not an everyday word. Uh, The root of it might sound familiar. It's the the word license. Um, It comes from the word license. It means to live permissively reckless. That's what the Corinthians are doing. They were selectively, purposely choosing to live other than how Paul had taught them to live as, as a Christian, permissively reckless. And so in a text, this is what Paul's doing. He quotes them, misquoting him, and he goes on to correct them. And so we're going to talk about the phrase that they use and why that matters to us. Here's what i are going to do first, though. Um, I think it's important for us to notice how Paul approaches the situation. What he's doing is he's reconstructing for them, and by extension, us, what Christian freedom looks like. What does it mean to, to know that you are free to do what you want as a Christian in Christ, but there are some boundaries to that freedom. That's what he's kind of trying to explain to them. And, and here's why this matters. Most of us in this room are, are quick to reach for false freedoms. Some of us are, are quick to give our best time and the best of our money and the best of our energy to things that ultimately don't provide us rest or peace or freedom. We've all chased after things that we think will make us more rested, more free, or even better off in some way or form, only to find out in very short order that what we've given ourselves to it doesn't matter up, it doesn't measure up. And I'm even I'm not even talking about sinful stuff. This can actually be be good stuff, like like vacations. So it's the end. Actually, it's not even the end of summer yet. I think we got one more month of summer, right? But because school has started, it's Labor Day. We kind of feel like it's uh, the, the end of summer, and we're transitioning into, a, uh, into a, a new season. Starbucks already got their pumpkin spice latte out in the market, right? It's, 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 it's time for fall. But let's imagine that we're back in summer. Most of you probably took a couple weeks, if not a few days, to go on vacation. And here's what we do on vacation. We leave where we are, generally. Sometimes we stay put, but generally we leave where we are. We go to a different location, we make elaborate plans, we cram a lot of stuff into a very few days. My family went to Orlando a couple weeks ago, and I went, I went to MWR, right? Morale, Welfare, and Recreation on post. I got some sweet four-day two, pa- two, 2 park passes uh, to Universal Studios, and we had it all planned out. Gonna like max out our time at the park. We go one day, woo, that was exhausting. The next day, we woke up at 10 o'clock, just recovering from our day at the park. Three days later, we went to the park again. Tell you what, it wore me out. We woke up at 11 o'clock that next day. Turns out, in our seven-day, seven-night stay in this beautiful resort, the funnest, most, I don't know, enjoyable time that we had was actually lounging by the pool, hanging out as a, as a family. And that's kind of how vacations go, isn't it? that you put all this effort into your vacation, both planning and the activities that you're going to do. And when you get home, you need a vacation from your vacation. But it's not just vacations. Sometimes we take on a new job and immediately after we, we take the job or a position and it may offer some better benefits or more money or more opportunity for a position, I mean, you wonder if you made the right decision because it's not turning out exactly how you thought it was going to turn out with the new position or title or responsibility or what have you. Maybe it's a relationship. You're entering a professional or perhaps even a personal relationship and you had your eyes, your, your mind's eye on what that relationship was going to be like and you get a, you get know you get into it and there's contention there that you don't know what to deal with. Maybe uh, you've always wanted a family. I mean, I just want to be married and have kids, and you get, uh, you get married and you have kids, and you realize, man, this is exhausting. I'm, I'm tired. This family is wearing me out. I could go on, but here's, here's Paul's big idea in our text. Kingdom freedom is to live for the glory of God and the gain of other people. That's, what, that's where your freedom lies, that freedom in the kingdom of God is to live in everything that you do for the glory of God and the gain of other people. And Paul will articulate this uh, with some examples in our text. He's going to deconstruct what the Corinthians' false freedoms were and point them to what true freedom is. And And Paul will do this because he he knows who the, the king of freedom is. It's, it's, it's King Jesus. And Jesus wants you to be free in every respect of of your life. But Paul is not just trying to do that. He's also trying to sculpt the Corinthians' ability to make decisions about everyday life. Wouldn't you? I mean, don't you want to make the right? I mean, you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit's in you, He's drawing you to, to, to Jesus. And uh, we want to make the right decisions. So Paul is going to help them do that. Make the right decisions in about everyday life. Not a new set of rules, not just telling them what's right and what's wrong. Instead, he's going to teach them to ask better questions in regards to the, uh, the, 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 the issues of their lives. Instead of a formula, he's going to give them a kingdom principle. It's much, it's much like the old adage that it's better to teach a man how to fish than to just hand him one. And so Paul is, is teaching that the decisions that we make have, has this exponential impact on our everyday lives. So the decisions that we make... Uh, is one of the main things that can either help or hinder our witness to an outside world and so with that we can see we needlessly needlessly say that there's a lot at stake and that brings us to our text this is what paul says all things are lawful but not all things are helpful and then he says it again all things are lawful but not all things build up verse 24 let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor and so here here we have the Corinthians spouting off this phrase all things are lawful and in a sense this had become their defining expression this was their mantra and and we've heard mantras like this before they're, they're all around us make love not war the twelfth man love wins black lives matter blue lives matter you fill in the gap in, in in the circles that you run in and I don't say those kinds of phrases to be political these phrases immediately conjure up images in our minds, and they, they immediately allow us to assign values and purposes to particular groups. And the Christians at Corinth were planting their flag along this phrase of all things are lawful, and they got that from Paul, except that they were, they were twisting a bit. The Corinthians were using this phrase to give themselves a a false freedom, and that's not what Paul intended. They wanted to live their lives any way they wanted. They were waving the banner of, it doesn't matter what we're doing because Paul just told me I'm free in Christ. So, I mean, am I I free or am I not free? And guess what Paul says? He said, that's not what I had just said. He, He says, no, that's not what it means to be free. Freedom in the kingdom of God doesn't mean that you betray who you are in Christ. Freedom in the kingdom of God doesn't mean that we sin so that grace can abound. He'll say that in Romans 6. We don't sin more so that God stacks up grace for us. Sin, and then God's going to bless me. Freedom doesn't mean that you disregard the flourishing or the well-being of those that are around you, and we never have to sin to reach the lost. Christ frees you from the gravitational pull of being, uh, to, to begin and end everything that you do with yourself at the center. And that really is the root of what Paul's getting into. If we would remove ourselves from the center of our mind, of, of, our, of our thoughts and our activity, we then might be able to think about somebody else and what they need in a given particular situation. So it's easy to see Paul's rebuke here. It's easy to recognize that the Corinthians, I mean, we've seen several instances where, all right, they're, they're missing the mark. They're kind of messed up as a church, but as individuals as well. They're misguided at best, self-absorbed at worst. But of course, before we point the pink finger and, and start joining in the rebuke, point your finger, man, That got one pointing back at me, right? We gotta look at our own stuff. What about you? Do you ever take the promises of God or even the commands of God out of context and live out of that wrong context? Are there things, if you're super honest, that you'd hesitate to do if Jesus in the flesh was sitting right next to you? Like, yes. Do you ever extend grace in the places where you struggle, but then harshly judge people in areas where you've never struggled? Listen to this conversation. Oh, you're struggling with sexual sin? Yeah, you better figure that out. What's that? Oh, oh no, I don't have time to serve. I don't have time to serve in the church, out of the church, in the, in the nonprofit organization, on the street, in my community. I'm just too busy for that. Look at this. That family bought something else they can't afford. 70 inch screen TV, that's not surprising. Tomorrow they'll bring a BMW in the driveway probably leased it. Oh, don't worry about my temper. I'll get it figured out. Well, you know, I don't really invite people into my home. That's kind of like my private space. But I tell you what, I never drink too much. I know my limits. I'm over-exaggerating, and these sound ridiculous, right? But perhaps maybe you've overheard someone talk like this, or maybe you've talked like that yourself. We have this remarkable ability to to cherry-pick the sins that bother us and to overlook the ones that that plague us, because we're fickle, right? We'll do one thing one day, and we'll do the exact opposite the very next day. In fact, some days we do the opposite. We also have this propensity to beat ourselves up endlessly, convinced that God is disappointed with us because of something that we did over the course of the last week, as if God is not a god of forgiveness. We jump on this pendulum, and the pendulum is swinging back and forth, and that's kind of how our lives are sometimes, with the things that we do and even the decisions that were made. We're like the disciples as Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They were laying down their cloaks, they were putting down olive branches, and they were saying, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were hailing Jesus as the Messiah that they were expecting, and he, was going, and he had come. They were receiving him, accepting him as their own. And of course, two days later, these same crowds would be in front of Pilate, and they would demonstrate the exact opposite. They would say, crucify him, as if they couldn't wait for Jesus to die. And they were gonna be the witnesses to that as well. And that's a telling picture of our of our fickleness. And the, the sad fact is that although we're in the 21st century, if we would project ourselves 2,000 years ago, very likely, many of us in this room, if we were in that crowd on that day, we would be chastising Jesus with our words as well. We're legalistic in one moment. Um, sort of trying to put a boundary around everybody. You can't do this, you can't that, but we're licentious in the next, casting off all restraint. We struggle to be unwavering. We also struggle to make choices that lead to our flourishing. Theologians call the moral plight of man after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, total depravity. Total, privity, total depravity means I'm not as bad as I could be in, the, you know, in how I live my life but there's nothing in me that that warrants God's favor. All right, so so God saving you is completely of his grace. It's not, not associated with anything good or moral or right that you do. It's totally about him. And so in every aspect of our being, our intellect, our logic, our emotions, our creativity, our imagination, our physical bodies, total depravity says all these things are affected and tainted by sin, and they, and they need God's redemption. That's why we need Jesus, because there's nothing in us that merits us to God, even on our good days. And if all these things about us need redeeming, it also makes sense that our decision-making needs redeeming as well. And that, Paul is making a case for that, that you need, a, you need a, uh, some kind of merit for your decision-making, and that's what he's trying to help the Corinthians uh, to see. So when the Corinthians repeat this phrase, all things are lawful for me, Paul actually says, he doesn't just say yes, he says, he says no and, and yes. You are free, but not all freedoms are helpful. He also says, nor do they all build up. The greatest way for us to spend this short and fragile life with all the big and small decisions that you and I have before us is to ask two questions. Will this glorify God, and will this lead to the gain of others? Will this glorify God, and will this lead to the gain of others? That's the principle. Kingdom freedom is to live for the glory of God and the gain of others. So let's, let's, let's unpack that. Will this glorify God? What does, what does glory mean? That's kind of a squishy word, right? We use it, but a lot of times we're using it and don't really know what it means. Sometimes we use it in a negative sense. We'll say, you know, that movie glorifies violence. Sometimes we use it in a self-directed way. No guts, no glory. We say that on a sports field. We might use it to describe something. Those were the glory days. I wish we could go back to that. Technically defined, glory is, is public praise, honor, and fame. So jump down to verse 31. Here's what Paul says. Whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the, that's the key verse in our, in our text. That's where I'm getting this idea of, of the principle of the kingdom freedom is to live for the glory of God and the gain of others. One scholar said, to glorify is to light something up brilliantly. Paul suggests that Christians are to live all their lives starting with the most ordinary things like eating and drinking in some way that God is publicly praised, honored, and made famous. Glory can also mean weight. So when we attribute glory to God, we're saying God is weighty and glorious in his being. So Paul tells us that all of our desires should ultimately be aimed at making God gloriously known for who he is in in everything that you do. Think about everything you do from waking up to grooming yourself, to driving, to leaving the house, to interacting at work or in whatever activity you might do on a given day, and then everything that you would do in the night to include sleeping, and all those activities, as simple and as ordinary as they may be, they should be aimed at God and his glory. That the shape of our lives is meant to make the beauty of God light up brilliantly to those around us. I love how he says that. That's just beautiful words. But it's true. So will this glorify God? Here's the second part of that that, that principle. Will this lead to the gain of others? The call of Christians is to have an others-centered, self-giving love on mission. It's to have more concern for the needs and interests of others than I have even for for my own needs which is hard for us to do. And so Paul's going to explain this uh, in a little more detail uh, in verse 32 and 33. I'm not going to go there yet. I want us to see the practical and cultural example that Paul gives in this text for how this principle works its way out. Look at verse 25. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So Paul starts by reminding the Corinthians that their freedom doesn't come from the culture or even his own words. Just because Paul said you're free in Christ, they want to, to focus their attention on what he said, but on what God had said. And so when, when Paul says the earth is the Lord's, he's drawn from the psalmist. That's Psalm 24.1. And what he's saying is our freedom is is. It has a bigger source than the culture that we live in. Has there ever been a time, Paul would say rhetorically, or a place that was not the Lord's? And of course the the answer is absolutely not. So Paul is pointing to something that's eternal and timeless and that's the source of our freedom. Everything in all of creation that we could ever think or imagine, it belongs to God. Its source comes from God and so he's the one that gets to um, Give us what true freedom looks like. So Paul says, if you want to go eat in the meat market, that's fine. But here's the catch, or at least the consideration. He continues in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So this is like example part B, but it could also be just a separate example. So you're at a dinner party, and the host brings out some appetizers, shrimp with cocktail sauce, got some chips and salsa, uh, guac on the side. They might bring out some, uh, they char charcuterie tray there on the table. Some cheeses, like all all the best stuff. Caviar. He's like gone way above, like just blessing us. But then, just casually, the host says, "Oh, oh, by the way, we did a little ritual sacrifice before the before y'all came, and we've blessed all this stuff in the name of, you know, the God of the Sun." Right. What does Paul say you should do? He says if, if they're gonna like offer that up to you, you should politely pass, just don't eat it. Scholars say that what Paul was most likely concerned with were firstly non-Christians, at what they might think or say as to what's happening, but also new Christians, that, that knowing that I'm in the company of a believer, a non-believer, or a new Christian, uh, they might get confused if they know that there's something weird going on with the food in the, you know, that we're gathering and eating, and they might have preconceived notions as, as to what a Christian can or cannot do, be uh, uh, depending on how, um, how spiritual or how mature they are in the Word and and God's purposes for us. So the the truth is, I mean, we're not going to get tripped up by that, right? I mean, you go ahead and do a ritual sacrifice over the food. I'm still going to eat it, right? But what trips us up? Yell it out. What are your ideas? Y'all scared? Let me say it. Alcohol. There's enough legalism and licentiousness in the church, even in this room, to scrutinize people, to judge them when you see them doing things that you might not do. Or to even judge them when you do it and they don't do it. Like you're weak. Alcohol, it'll trip us up. Smoking. Cigarettes, jewel. Don't y'all get sick of all these jewel commercials? Isn't it driving you nuts? Cigars. That's what we reformed folks do. Bourbon and cigars. It's our faith. How about gambling? Gambling. Is there anything in the Bible that says I should not gamble? Find it. Find chapter and verse. Don't gamble. There's enough licentiousness and uh, legalism in the church that we would scrutinize all of those things. Here's what Paul says. If you're in one of those situations, just decline it. It's not worth it. What's not worth it? It's not worth the damage you could do to the, the, the young, immature Christian or the the brand new uh, Christian, or the un, uh, the unbeliever that might have preconceived notions about what Christianity looks like and how it should be lived out, and you're doing a disservice to them if you would exercise your freedom um, rather than just um, showing a little bit of constraint. He's making the point, exercise your freedom in Christ is not the, uh, not the mark of a mature believer. Did you hear that? doing what you do doing what you want to do when you want to do it just because you know you're free and you don't have an issue with it it's not the mark of a true believer using your kingdom freedom to live for the glory of God and the good of others however is that's the mark of a true believer then he goes on to verse 31 so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of God give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I was uh, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of the many that they may be saved and so Paul is calling upon the Corinthian believers to allow themselves to be disadvantaged for the sake of others. I said this before it, it's the picture of love on a mission I, I I know I have been commissioned by Christ to 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 live my life openly for the glory of God and for the good of other people. And so I'm going to love you as if my relationship to Jesus is more important than what I want to do because I can do it. There's a particular note here in verse 32. Paul says, give no offense. In verse 33, he says, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's through our other-centered, self-giving posture that we can live for the gain of others, and thereby, thereby glorify God. And so when I choose to defer to others, not in what I do, but I, how I even think about the situation I'm in, I, in that moment, am glorifying God. When I, when I choose not to do what I'm free to do, but instead will show some restraint so that another won't be hindered. It's through our other-centered, self-giving posture that we can live for the gain of others, and thereby I glorify God. And why? Because we're concerned, ultimately, about their good, namely their salvation. So there's a beauty, not just in what, is, what Paul is saying, there's a beauty in how he's saying it. He doesn't hammer these Christians over the head, um, trying to, like, sock them with shame and guilt. Okay, they've got some stuff going on that's not quite right. We could say they're a messed up church, particularly in this way. They are taking his phrase of everything is lawful, and they're not being helpful or trying to build up anybody. They're just doing whatever they want to do. But Paul is not, he doesn't have the, 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 the sledgehammer out and say, I'm going to whack you. I'm just going to take you out. So you don't have anything to worry about they're not eating and drinking to the glory of god they're eating and drinking to have their fill but paul hits them not with shame and guilt he hits them with good news that their motivation for both glorifying God and doing good to those around him, it might be uh, not in what they do or don't do, but that it might be in Jesus and what he's done for them and to them. And what has Jesus done for them and to them? He's made everything. The earth is the Lord's, Paul begins this with, including you, that Jesus loves you, that he sees you, that he forgives you, that Jesus watches all of us make decisions our whole lives with ourselves at the center, it's true that's a broken way to live but here's what jesus does he gives us the kingdom and when he gives us the kingdom he gives us everything we need to live differently and there is no there's far greater joy when we do things his way let me make two observations the first is this the, the stakes really are high now this is this is a silly example and it doesn't fit into our 21st century culture of 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 having a situation where someone would offer you meat sacrificed in some kind of ritual ceremony and then feeding it to people. But there are real examples in how we live. Things that we feel comfortable doing that other people who believe what we believe don't. And it causes tension amongst us. And so the stakes are really high. Not that someone else's salvation is hanging in the balance because of you personally. What you do and don't do, you're not personally responsible for anybody's salvation. And yet you can't deny from scripture that God uses people like you and me to help other people get saved. And it might be what you do or don't do. It might be what you say or don't say. It might be you exercising restraint instead of just like letting yourself hang out there and do whatever you want to do. That's Paul's point. We can't possibly see the, the, the eternal impacts of the things that we do or don't do, the decisions we make, eating, drinking, where you decide to live, who you'll room with in college, what school to register your kids in, whether they go to Popeye's chicken or, or to stick with Christian chicken, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, I told my family yesterday, you know what, Chick-fil-A is closed today and I'm feeling some Popeye's chicken. And I'll just close my eyes and pretend like it's Christian chicken. We, we can't see the eternal impacts of these seemingly insignificant decisions. And yet, the way we make those decisions really matters. And so we need to invite the Holy Spirit in to lead us in those things. So the stakes are really high. Here's the second thing. Everything that we do, can you handle that? Everything that you do, to include the way that you eat meals together or don't eat meals together, the way that you drink or don't drink, the way that you smoke or don't smoke. Smoking is dangerous for your health, by the way. That was like, that came from heaven. All that stuff can be done for the glory of God. Let me ask you, when you hear that, when you hear that everything that you do can be done for the glory of God, does that burden you, depress you, or perhaps excite you? Does it, does, it, does it put a weight on you to know that you should actually be, you should have this perspective that everything I do can be done to the glory of God? Every project at work, every lunch appointment, every time you date your wife, every time you play with your kids, every time you greet your neighbor, every Friday night hang out like in your, in your backyard with your friends. Everything that you can do should be done to the glory of God and the gain of others. And here's the thing. honestly, if you hear that and it burdens you, if, you feel, if it feels heavy to you, then that tells you a lot about what you think about God. For you, God might be a judge. He, he's a spiritual referee, calling fouls, blowing whistles. when you step out of bounds and, and you probably feel like, man, I'm stepping out of bounds all the time and like God, it's like constantly like officiating me. At least that's what I feel like. Likewise, if you find yourself in a place where you say, you know what? I just want to be off the clock. I mean, I want to like do my day. I might be turned on right then, but like when I go home, I want to be off the clock. On the weekends, I want to be off the clock. I just need some me time. Nobody watching me, not even God. Like, don't keep score, God. Put that put that journal down. Like, turn off your omniscience. <laughs> and and this again is a skewed view of God. But here's the picture that Scripture paints for us of God, that he's Father, he's Abba, he's your advocate, he's, your, he's a friend of sinners. When we're able to view God like this, suddenly all the little and big decisions that we have to make, they're an opportunity for God to show up. Not with a hammer to, to, to get us back on the, on the, on the right road. If God is truly for us, then the ordinary life decisions we make don't induce fear. They don't cause our anxieties to rise. They don't stress us out. Rather, they're simply the stage for us to watch what God does in our life. If We're open, book, Lord, you know what? I really want to do this, but I know there's some people here that, for whatever reason, they might not be able to handle it. I'm going to choose to, to honor you, glorify you, and in doing that, I'm going to um, do this uh, for the gain of others. Here's how Paul concludes, verse, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is a bold statement. This is a refrigerator verse. Some of y'all got this like on a magnet on your refrigerator. Some of you embroidered it, like crocheted it into a, into a pillow. It's like sitting neatly. You don't get anybody to sit in that chair with that, that verse on it. It's one of those things we, re- we memorize, like, Lord, I want to live up to that. But if we're honest, we read this statement by Paul and we think that Paul is either full of himself or he's got this he's got this another level of holy that I can never attain to. Right. Don't you think that about Apostle Paul It's, it's true? You know, one of the founding principles in counseling is this idea uh, that the human soul is permeable. It's permeable that we absorb what we observe and interact with. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? The things that you're around, you absorb it. I mean, you're going to like take it in. You're going to start acting a certain way and pretty much talking a certain way. That's why when you join a new unit, or you come to a new company, or even joining a new church, any kind of organization, or even if you avail yourself to like neighbors or family members, and they are in your presence constantly, you pick up the language and perhaps the mannerisms of the way they do things the way they do them. This is why, despite your very, very best efforts, if you're like beyond 20 or 30, as you get older, you realize you sound just like mom and dad. Like, like ah, man, I didn't, want, I didn't want to do that like them. It just happens. It's also why parenting is kind of terrifying, right? Because you've got these little minions that, I mean, reflect back both your best and worst parts of your life. Because they're hearing you and mimicking you every day, all day. Your kids are permeable little souls, and they'll absorb the stuff that you put out. Discipleship is no different. We absorb what we observe and what we interact with. That's what Paul is saying. So what, what does Paul mean when he says, imitate me? I think, you know, some would say Paul is just confident. He's bold and he's holy. And so he really is saying, you know what? I'm doing it the way God wants me to do it, and so just look at me, hear what I say, and, and, and do that. I th- honestly, I mean, Paul was, um, Paul was especially called by God to do what we are receiving in the Scriptures from him. But I, I do think there's a nuance in what he's saying. I, I think Paul is saying, imitate my passion as I pursue Christ. Imitate the way I make life decisions as I consider others. And when I screw that up, imitate the way I repent. And that feels more reachable, doesn't it? So, for you in relation, those of you in relationship, particularly married couples, the most Christian thing you can do for your marriage is is not come here two or three times a month and and hear a good sermon and and walk out intending to do that. The best thing you can do for your marriage is not have scripture decor like this verse on your wall or in your refrigerator or on a pillow on on a chair somewhere. The best thing that you can do for your relationship is. It's first, die daily to what you want and give room for what the other person wants. But, but it's this, it's, it's, it, it's trusting that repentance works. I say that not because I'm good at it. I say it because that's what the Bible suggests to us. So, so that we can all say, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I pursue Jesus and how I consider others. And when I mess that up, because I will, follow me in my repentance. We can, we can all do that. In God's design, one of the main ways he works out our discipleship is to have us follow others who who follow a perfect Christ imperfectly. You get that? We we follow other people who follow a a perfect Christ imperfectly. They They aren't doing it exactly how they're supposed to do it. And so here's what I just reflect on a lot, probably too much. You know, there's parts of me that have great value in like the things that I do, what I model for my kids and for my family, that I hope they pick up. Like it would be good for them. There's lots of things like that that I'm just good at. But then there's, there's like the other half of my life that you know what I pray all the time. All right, Lord, so you got to redeem that, not just in me, in my kids, and I'm praying that they would know you more, um, live out of your gospel more, and and pursue you well beyond what I have been able to in the life that you've given me. I pray the same thing for you. Like even as Nick and I stand up here on this stage that we model some good things for you. We're pastors, we're supposed to, we're called to do it. But there are some parts of our life that we need greater repentance and for what we're praying. Like, Lord, let us be the the step stool that these people step on to go wherever you're gonna take them. And that's just how it is. The human soul is permeable. Let me ask you this, what are you absorbing right now in this season of your life? What are you absorbing? Who are you absorbing? What things have you absorbed in the story or in your past where you desperately need God to show up and heal? Who should you be absorbing right now? Or who should be absorbing you right now? Maybe God has brought somebody into your path and uh, their life is messy. Maybe you realize that and you're like, you know what? I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this person and the stuff that they're bringing. Uh, but perhaps they're the person that God has called you to invest in, to invest some time in them, to mentor them, to pour into them, that God would be your strength and grace to that person. So who needs to absorb you right now? I'll finish with this. Paul, uh, Paul calls this church and us to the same thing to use the freedom he's given us in Christ for his glory. Am I free to have an adult beverage, bourbon and a cigar, in my backyard with my friend or my neighbor, even if that neighbor has a history of alcoholism and not worry what it's going to do to him? I am. I'm free to do that. There's nothing in scripture that calls that sinful uh, But is it helpful to this particular guy? Probably not. So that's the question I need to ask. uh, Would it glorify God? Would it cost the gain of others? probably not. All right, let's do it. We're going to have some tea. Well, not tea. Like sparkling water. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sparkling water. What about smoking, gambling? Am I free to do those things? Absolutely. Ask yourself, will this bring glory to God? Will this um, cause the gain of others? And if the environment that you're in allows you to do that with a good conscience, then then do it to the glory of God. Am I free to have a lazy Saturday afternoon from time to time, which all of us like to do? Absolutely, rest is good for our souls, but we shouldn't use the excuse of rest and relaxation uh, to prevent us from going outside with our kids or our families, meeting our neighbors, engaging in the community God has placed us in, Am I free to use my money any way I want? Absolutely. But could someone tell that I'm a Christian by looking at my my bank statement? And I know this all sounds kind of crazy, particularly if you're new to Christianity, that, that I'm supposed to curb my appetite or the things that I do and don't want to do just so somebody else can be appeased? That doesn't sound quite right. But what... Paul is suggesting it's what Jesus um, announces, the kingdom of God. It's it's this upside-down reality. It's counterintuitive. At least it seems that way. But in the end, Jesus really didn't mean what he said. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And that's what you're doing when you think about life this way. I'm going to make the decisions of my life in totality from beginning to end, morning morning to night, Does it glorify God, and does it cost the gain of others? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Thank you for your words. Thank you for Paul and the calling on his life. What you allowed him to do and articulate to us that we might um, understand you more, that the gospel might work in us with greater um, effect, and that we might live not to ourselves but to you. Lord, we struggle in this area, whether we want to admit it or not. The mature Christian in Christ, the very young one, we all are quick to uh, judge others who don't do things like we do it. Both legalism and licentiousness lies in us and it lies in our church as it does in the wider body of Christ. So help us, uh, give us this internal perspective by your spirit to help us see those places where we fail, where we fail to glorify you and uh, look to the gain of others and grow us in this area. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.